If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. We are in unusual climbs today. Unfamiliar terrain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling freaked out? No, it's alright. Once you put the lights on, it made it a lot better. <laughs> yeah, we do usually podcast in the dark, but we yeah. thought we'd mix it up. Um, so, I'm Mark. That's Chris. Say hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. And that's Vicky. That's Vicky. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, uh, Luigi, the infamous Luigi, has covid I don't know how Tracks. he man- I don't know how he managed to avoid it this far. And frankly, I don't that know. That's actually astonishing. That's that. amazing. I know, and I don't know who's going to come off worst, him or COVID. Yeah. <laughs> the two meeting, mm-hmm. but uh, Luigi's unwell, so we're not podcasting from my place, which is our usual studio these mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you may notice some slightly different acoustics. I will no doubt be left to grapple with those when it comes to the edit, because this room is bouncy. We give mm-hmm. it a little. Hang on. There you go. I've seen that reverb, man. You could do a drum kit in here. Yeah. Phil Collins. My band uh, used to rent one of the studios. You get in East End of Glasgow. There's a place called Dumarnock, and there's a whole bunch of studios in there. Dalmarnock, mm-hmm. and uh, very famous. The road in Bridgeton. And mm-hmm. I asked the guy who who lets it out. He was like, I was like, how 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 are the acoustics at? And he was like, it's a bit lively. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good description of what this room is like. This room is definitely lively. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Another sonic issue that we might face is that we're right next to a road. Main road, yeah. And, and I'm sorry, needs must, but uh, there may be the odd bit of hesitation or clumsy chop as we take a bus out of the out of the program. And <laughs> um, we'll do our best. Uh, but I'm really excited about this episode. I'm really excited about doing this show. Yeah, um, I can tell. Yeah, we had to switch up the order because yes. our recording schedule, the Gaslight and something, uh, as you've probably gathered by now, couldn't happen when it was scheduled to happen. You know, various scheduling conflicts but pretty pleased that we're getting this one done so uh we're going to do a show about gene clark this week but before we do a show about gene clark we're going to get some admin out the road mark yes so we received a really nice message from a former member of julia 13 recently and um, saying that he's a long-time listener to the podcast and he was stunned to find out that his band were tangent- tangentially tangentially featured on our show um i can't remember his name can Brugie. you say uh, brownley yeah. Craig mm-hmm. Brownlee. Uh, so that's not the first time this has happened. You never know who's listening. Exactly. After the China drum episode, both the old drummer and the old guitar player reached out to us individually, yeah, <laughs> like without even talking to each other uh, um, about how much how much they enjoyed it as well. So you know, this does happen quite a lot. That's I think that's a pretty positive thing. So yeah, it's nice getting feedback like that, isn't it? It was also nice totally, that it yeah. wasn't feedback in the same way as the Biffy Clyro tour manager's <laughs> feedback. <laughs> like Craig was pretty happy with how we handled the, the mm-hmm. and that's that's. Very nice. Um, I have a piece of personal admin. We don't usually spend a lot of time uh, on the subject of musicians that pass away, uh, but as Mm, most people I would think that listen to this podcast are at least peripherally aware, uh, Mimi Parker of the band Low passed away this week. Yeah.
And I have to say, you know, in the in the pantheon of great musicians, including the Bowies and Prince and all those characters, I, I've never actually personally felt one more than Mimi Parker. I'm uh, really sad about it too. Um, mm-hmm. In a selfish way, I'm devastated. I'm never going to see that band again. I know. Um, and I'm really sad for Alan because I believe as a couple they've been through quite a lot recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and also in the past, lower remarkably nice and uh, engaged with us when we did the show about them um, which was totally unexpected mm-hmm. but uh, it was really appreciated and they're just a fantastic band and I am yeah I'm really really sad to hear that news definitely I think like one of my best concert experiences is going to see Low and they've just I've been to see them now over like a 20 year span and they toured a lot so you did get to see them a lot and it was just always a total joy going to see Lola. Always, like some absolutely amazing recollections of Lola's really nice people. Also, not so nice recollections like the time the people fought. <laughs> the there was the only fight, fight, apparently, according to the band, the only fight in mm-hmm. the history of a low concert happened in Glasgow. Only mm-hmm. Glasgow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just wanted to put that in there because yeah. that, that was really sad news Definitely. this week. Uh, in terms of other admin, anything more uplifting? Any new subs? Yeah, so Scott Walker has come back to us. Th- <laughs> thanks for returning, Scott, from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> good to have you back, Scott. Um, uh, and you can do that. Which a really good segue into plug in the record, <laughs> record club. club. Um, so you can you can jump in and jump out. People do that all the time, um, and people sometimes leave us messages saying, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't this month. You don't need to do that, right? I mean, we don't expect you to do that. Like everyone's <laughs> going through some financial hardship. I want to see bank statements. <laughs> yeah, mm. so we, we don't expect that, but you can come and go as you please, and the benefits remain open to you while you are part of it, and you can still remain maybe part of the Facebook group if you do leave and come back yeah we're not ruthless we're not ruthless yeah. about that shit uh, so. the Facebook group's been on fire as we mm-hmm. prepare for the Christmas episode we're getting some suggestions for questions in and this year we're going to send some of those questions out to musicians that will remain unnamed mm-hmm. uh, so you never know who will end up with your question as yeah. well we'll get some voice notes from them but yeah uh, the record club even if you just want to do it for one month you know Christmas is coming up treat yourself jump in we've again sent out some really good stuff had some really good feedback from the people that have received stuff so yeah. Go to Mark. Go to uh, patreon.com forward slash unsung pods. And yeah. subscribe to one of those levels, and I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Yeah, your money is going directly to the artists, um, and that's amazing because it's way more money than it's you would li- get. Yeah. It's literally hundreds of yeah. thousands of times the revenue they would get if you go and listen to it on Spotify. So give that some consideration yeah the AAA Facebook page had some suggestions for the title of your episode from last That's week right. that had that really awkwardly long title the that you were trying to come up with was something but then I've got to hear <laughs> the band that emerged that is better known for the later success of its members than for their own music mixtape yeah <laughs> uh I, I came up with one that I thought I was, thought yours was the best. It was pretty good. The Disney Club effect, which yes. is you know obviously what's his name, Ryan, Ryan Gosling, Ryan Gosling, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. Yeah, that's all right. The Disney Club effect. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm afraid. Mate. Sorry. <laughs> they were all in the Disney Club when they were little, but they're obviously uh, better known for their okay. other artistic. Yeah. In, I have no idea what Disney Club is. In, so. It's like Glenn comments. Michael's cartoon cavalcade, but not as big. <laughs> You're going to follow the opposite direction now, aren't you? Glenn Michael. <laughs> the fuck is Glenn Michael? Oh, you don't Fucking remember Glenn hell, Michael's man. cartoon cavalcade? I know. I want to see your oh. boss up again. <laughs> Childhood memories. Wow. Actually, I was, I was on holiday recently seeing my sister in Denmark, and we were talking about like some of the stuff we used to watch as kids, so it was quite funny. Vicky like, the Viking. Um, <laughs> was it? Are you named after her? Mm-hmm. Perfect. I think it was a wee boy to be honest but <laughs> <laughs> Brum I was a big fan um, of Brum you named car. after him the car. yeah totally uh, some other suggestions we had was solid foundations which I think's okay and new or greener pastures both cool shouts um, thanks for those on Instagram 
Can anybody remember any others we loved? A lot of infatuation with the London, the London look. Aye, that band yeah, London. That were band in, London was a really good example. Yeah, that was brilliant. They were in that uh, way, uh, decline of Western civilization. They oh, were here, uh, Tommy Smith, one of our listeners, also sent us a couple of amazing suggestions. Oh yeah, to- like Tommy's. Tommy's a great guy. Um, shout out to him. He's listening. He's always listening. He, we, we, we'd overlooked two really, really good examples of that phenomenon. Yeah, one of them is Arma Angelis, who I did actually write down in my notes. But I think the reason I didn't bring it up was because it's basically Fallout Boy. Right. <laughs> No, uh, but it's also but Tim from Rise Against was in it for Rise a bit Against as well, as well yeah. and yeah, at one point it was basically Pete Wentz for Fallout Boy was a sing- uh, credited as an unclean vocalist, which is a totally early two thousands thing that you don't get <laughs> any other time in history. Um, and he was in that band, and then other me- every other member of Fallout Boy was in it at one other point. Right, okay. Um, what was the other suggestion? Baxter, who contained members of the Lawrence Arms and Rise Against and and uh, uh, Unclean Trio. We also uh, got the House Martins. And that was a fucking yeah. Really yeah I can't believe we missed that. Yeah, beautiful South, Fat Boy Slim. Slim. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is pretty pretty big overlooked. Mm-hmm. That to be honest. Anyway, that was that was then. This is now. Uh, this is uh, a really meaningful episode for me because I only became aware of this week's choice quite recently. I was on tour with my own band. We were playing a show in London, and you know, between sound checking and starting to perform, we're just hanging about in the bar, and this song came on, and I was just. You know, you're mid-conversation and then you sort of do that thing like, shh, shh, shh. What the fuck? What? <laughs> you tell people to shh, shh, shh. Stop talking to each other. I'm trying to listen to this music. Um, and I, I just had no idea what I was hearing, but it was fucking brilliant. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was a band Masters of Reality, that Chris Goss's thing, the, the guy that produced Queens of Stone Age mm-hmm. or worked with Queens of Stone Age and stuff. And so I went up to the barman and asked him, and he said, "Oh, this is a guy called Gene Clark." And I was like, "That's vaguely familiar." I was, and he said, "This is a track called No Other." I was like, "This is all new to me." When did it come out? I thought it was quite quite new because um, it had a little hint of like John Grant or something uh, you know yes oh completely uh huh greatest mm-hmm. motherfucker that kind of thing yeah I'm usually only waiting for you to stop talking so that I can so it was a little bit of that to it. it was like no 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 man this was like from 1974 I was like okay, wow, this is a whole can of worms. I need to find out about this. So yeah, and I, I left London with this mission to, to, to familiarise myself with Gene Clark and this record in particular. So the album, it turns out, is also called No Other. Mm-hmm. By the way, Gene Clark now rests in his grave with a tombstone that simply says, Gene Clark, No Other. Oh, That's kind of beautiful as that well. That is nice. Um, so it turns out Gene Clark's also frequently discussed as uh, the perennial underachiever. Um, especially in that 60s and 70s music scene that seemed so perfect for his songwriting talents when you think about the people around him and how successful they got. Having studied it now a bit and immersed myself in it, I think a mixture of bad timing, bad luck and some bad choices lie behind that. Um, What's really fascinating about this record, and this is actually something that the barman in London told me before I I vanished, was that supposedly the the recording costs spiralled out of control. It Mm -hmm. was just one of those really bloated, vain projects that Mm -hmm. just became ridiculous and multiple versions and choirs coming in and Mm -hmm. crazy instruments popping up in different ears and it's just... And drugs. And... A lot of drugs. Well, yeah, well, drugs... 
in the recording stage, mm. but actually it's it's sort of interesting because in the writing stage he was He's clean, sober. Mm-hmm. and that was a really big thing for him. Um, he had two young children, I think, mm-hmm. at the time, was it two, and his his wife said, "Yeah, he came back and he, he cleaned up completely during this writing." It was when they went to record that it became a big issue. But yeah, it, what it reminded me of it's, it's like a great example of studio excess maybe not quite as extreme as Brian Wilson who's obviously quite famous for that as well it's it's the kind of beautiful farce that you see depicted in um, you see it in some kind of monster in a different way you see it in Spinal Tap you see it in uh, you know uh, What Card the Dewey Cox story <laughs> remember the scene yeah. where he's got the goat and the tribesman <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's that thing where, especially in this era, you know, it's that that weird bloated seventies and eighties era of these household name musicians in a lot of cases, or people that had left household name bands, fumbling around for ongoing relevance, and the, you know, their best work was usually maybe a decade behind them. The trends in music were changing around them. But at the same time, the music world was still awash with money. You know, the record labels were absolutely loaded. People bought records in the millions. Um, and thus the labels could kind of afford to entertain their egos um, and to some extent entertain their desperation. And so the, these kind of projects, they often sort of showed a musician, not only with some kind of writer's block, you know, struggling to rediscover the mojo that had got them famous in the first place, but also often this much more personal you know profound personal crisis of aging uh and maybe even deteriorating mental health you know because of the amount of drugs that they'd, they'd gone through you see that i mean the walk hard is a, a, obviously a, a satirical film a fucking brilliant film by the way i'll stand by that completely but mm-hmm. you know it's it's at that point in joey cox's career where he's kind of getting older and he's not this sprightly young thing that the music press want to write about he's now at that point of his career where he's trying to make the music press write about him rather than them wanting to mm-hmm. and that's an interesting change in dynamic that really affects these people's egos because for a long time they've been king of the castle and yeah there's there's a, an element of isolation often comes into it falling out with bandmates leaving bands disputes over t-shirt sales type scenarios there's a bit of self-abuse you know uh, in the sense of narcotics and drink and relationships and adultery and just general behavior arrests there's like maybe even an element of like a slow circling of the drain mm-hmm. you know um so there's a lot of things packed into this caricature of a musician embarking on one of these insanely OTT projects and I think they also often represent some of the hardest fought creative struggles that those people will have Mm -hmm. because when they're young they maybe even don't set out with any expectations of fame so you set out you do something you don't put a lot of thought into it everybody likes it and you're like wow this is great but then you suddenly have to start to replicate that Arctic Monkeys are quite a good example just a bunch of wee guys set out in a band became really big then got to this point where they're doing fucking concept albums about space stations and bringing in jazz piano and you're like this is a band that can't really recapture that simplicity of its approach from Mm. the early days Um, so there's a real sudden fight to be creative in a relevant way rather than it coming naturally and sometimes the artists emerged with things that were strangely brilliant they were often very different from the rest of their output um, and to be clear as well even the ones that were good or, or, or became revered in the long run were rarely immediately hailed as triumphs um, I, I think for me this album no other a bit like Smile captures some of the great art that can emerge from that bizarre kind of co- combination of indulgence and adversity mm-hmm. um, so it's a really interesting case study I suppose the difference in this scenario is that if you compare it to the Beach Boys, in the Beach Boys you had other people there that were also trying to do something and that can affect the product, whereas you've got somebody on their own here, isn't it? A solo artist, mm-hmm. so that maybe allows them to go even further in that direction, yeah. whereas in the in the Beach Boys you've got people trying to pull another directions you know so yeah there's an element of truth to that mm-hmm. and also I mean in this case he um, Gene Clark was more or less alone in the songwriting yeah. uh, but he, he did he teamed up with a guy called Thomas Jefferson K and actually continued to work with Thomas Jefferson K for another 15 years and Thomas Jefferson K already had a reputation for going way over the score with mm-hmm. studio budgets as a producer that he had this fixation on on giving the public his own take on that Phil Spector wall of sound, sound Brian yeah. Wilson sort mm-hmm. of OTT maximalist approach and so 
you know, Kay was really egging him on here as well, and he had previous, you know, and the, the record label were, we'll get to that, but they were not amused. <laughs> was that Geffen? It was Geffen's mm-hmm. uh, first record label, yeah, Asylum Records, yeah. Um, we'll do a bit of basic history, but before we do that, Mark, had you ever heard this? Have I heard this? No. Uh, obviously heard the birds, right? Yeah, so we've not really said that. So Gene no. Clark is maybe a familiar name because he was one of the founders of the birds. Left the birds really quite early as after well. the well, technically the second album, but he was still around in the third album. His vocals on a couple of songs, and then he came back for the last one. Everybody yeah. did came back for the last one. Yeah. Really. Uh, so they formed in '64, mm-hmm. and he'd left by '66. Yeah, which is is pretty remarkable. And they actually they did a lot of things in that interim as well. I mean, the birds had a lot of Hi. big songs. They were one of the bands of that era. Kind of quintessential. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, Not uncommon for a sixties band to do such a, so much in a short period of time. It seemed to be the Beach Boys was at yeah. four albums a year Aye. at one point. Yeah, it seemed to be the thing in the sixties. But yeah, I'd never heard of Gene Clark's music. I knew he'd done music, obviously, but um, I'd never heard his solo stuff. Just heard of him via the birds. Mm. Uh, obviously, from the birds, there's people that are not him. That, 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 you David know, Crosby. David Crosby, Graham Parsons, Taylor, lesser Graham degree Parsons. as well, you know, mm-hmm. um, who, who kind of became the more well-known members of the, of, the, of the band after it broke up. So, yeah, it was interesting for me to come to this and, and to totally crash course discography as much as possible in the, in the course of one day, <laughs> <laughs> which was not a hugely pleasant experience. But, there's, um, there's, there's a lot and there also isn't a lot because it, the discography features a lot of reissues and a lot of outtakes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not so much the, the wealth of stuff that's out there, it's more the direction of some of the stuff, that, <laughs> you know, which, yeah. which I found a bit great. And, well, see, I, I have so. to say, without giving away too many spoilers i am curious to get your opinion on some of these albums because he was he, i mean he, his nickname was the hillbilly shakespeare mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i'm really interested to get your take on it because it's so country influenced and i can't fucking abide country music or americana whereas i know you've got a, quite a, a lot of room in for it uh, yeah but it's see the thing i liked about no other is that it it has the country where it's needed. I think going that how Billy Yoko sort of <laughs> my, my wife left me kind of stuff vibe, not necessarily lyrically for him, but the vibe of that kind of music, the proper country stuff, I can't abide that either. Like the grand old Opry sort of thing, I can't. It's like that's not for me. Um, he's got a power of banjos in his back catalogue. I like a banjo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have the beard of a man that likes a banjo. Yeah, I love the flannel though. <laughs> <laughs> Should give it a wardrobe upgrade. But yeah, I think there's a fine line for country for me, and he had a lot of his solo stuff tips quite far over that line, yeah. and mm-hmm. even at some places in no other. But we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Well. I'll do a wee bit of basic background, okay? So he was born Harold Eugene Clark uh, in, 1990, uh, in 1944 in Tipton, Missouri. He, he actually died in 1991, so he's a relatively young yeah. man. Yeah, yeah he supposedly died. he had throat cancer. He had throat cancer, but he also had... I think he actually died of a, bleed, a bleeding ulcer. He had serious issues with, with chronic ulcers because of alcoholism, and I think that was actually what killed him, not the cancer, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I said, he was a founder and he was actually the chief songwriter for the Birds in that peak mm-hmm. kind of 60s era, 64 to 66. And he first embarked on his solo career in 67 with an album uh, titled Gene Clark with the Godson Brothers, which I think was also the title of the project. Um, yeah, that's a pretty cool album, Matt. You can watch Regina dance through the crystal panes of glass, yet you know that there's so much that she's not seeing. Still you hold one precious thought After all this time You like it? I think it's okay It's very beautiful Very beautiful But I had, I, had, I had some time for some of it Yeah, yeah We'll, we'll, we'll touch on it uh, shortly um, He'd started out at first In a folk act called The Surf Riders He was spotted with them And picked up by one of those Giant cheesy 60s folk ensembles Called the New Christie Minstrels mm-hmm. Who ended up leaving in the early 60s Now if anyone has seen The, the Christopher Guest kind of ensemble movie A Mighty Wind Have you seen that? The comedy film so It's the same people that made Spinal Tap But it's, yeah. a, it's yeah. a folk music version of mm-hmm. it And I mean I think it's fantastic It's, it's a much lower key affair It's not mm-hmm. quite as mm-hmm. <laughs> absurdist as, as Spinal Tap But it, it's really really well observed And for example 
example, the way that people went through, you know, you'd have the Christie min- minstrels, the new Christie minstrels, mm-hmm. the, the reformed Christie mm-hmm. minstrels, mm-hmm. all these various iterations of these cheesy folk franchises. So he got caught up in one of those things. And when you see the photos of it, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's, it's that, it's, it's, I recreate it. it. It's like Slipknot for like the American 50s suburban dream. Do you right. know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's just nine, 10, 12 piece bands sitting side on with their knees tastefully together in these matching jumpers and smiles and very tidy. I mean, it, it, it's, it's creepy almost in a yeah. way. Yeah, there's some very conservative Christian vibes to it. But yeah, so he was in one of them. Apparently hearing the Beatles, a uh, big band apparently, mm-hmm. changed his direction musically and he began what would later become the Birds uh, with Jim Roger McGinn in 64. Uh, I think he later be- became known just as Roger McGinn because yeah. he was actually mm-hmm. James McGinn. He worked him quite a lot, didn't he? Yeah, they did a lot of stuff on and off, um, but he was. they were the two guys that actually founded the Birds. I think they met in the Troubadour. Um Clark, uh, Jane Clark, would spend over two years in that band, as we said before. Internal arguments about a number of things, including lead vocal duties. Uh, apparently, um, McGinn, at the behest of the record label, was given the lead on the singles. And also, I think it was a, a couple of famous cover versions they did. Bob and, Dylan. Is it Dylan, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he, he kind of resented that a bit. Um, now, there was also some tension because Gene Clark was getting a lot of extra royalties because he was the songwriter. Mm. And then there was also some added tension because Gene Clark was deathly afraid of flying. Ooh. Right. And it, it led to a lot of trouble with him touring because he couldn't do it. I was trying to remember, I thought it was actually maybe Almost Famous, but no, the, the, the scene in Almost Famous is where the planes crash and then they all start spilling the beans. Yes. But I'm sure there is another drama dramatized film where one of the members of the band is horrendously scared i mean it's like the ba baracus of the birds right but um <laughs> he's horrendously scared of traveling on planes and it really affects the morale of the band well, well the beach boys were like that were they like that as well i don't know if brian wilson if he was afraid of flying but he remember he had a kind of panic attack on a plane and that was the end of his touring with the Beach Boys for years that's right I, I do remember mm. that now so so he was terribly afraid of flying and that caused a lot of problems with their touring schedule by the way some other celebrities are terrified of flying uh, Aretha Franklin apparently her tours never featured certain cities because the only way to get to them was via these certain flights that she was particularly unwilling to do uh, Ben Affleck Apparently, as a nine-year-old, uh, he was in a plane that was hit by lightning and burst into flames. And the plane That'll landed, but it fucking left him with a lifelong fear of flying. Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis Barker. Yeah, he was on a flight. With, he was doing a, a sort of collaboration project with DG, DGAM, and they were on a flight together that crashed, and uh, DGM like, died. That's right, yeah. Um, and so uh, it's only only been the past five or six years, maybe, that they've actually been able to tour internationally, Blink-182, because he just not, he just wasn't wasn't getting a flight. Fucking well, Sometimes he'd actually get a boat. Excuse me, I think it's Blink-182. <laughs> <Okay>, well done. <laughs> Um, Only if you're American, honey. <laughs> call yourself a pop punk man in public. Um, That's actually an ongoing point. I hate fucking Blink-182, man, but they always talk about that. Like In, in Britain, it's always all Blink-182, and in America, it's Blink-182. Mm. Yeah. It's good that we wasted time on it this week, yeah. though. Um, yeah. Britney Banter S- level. Britney Spears. Four million. I'm Britney pressing Spears. on. Yeah, I'm trying to change the subject for Blink-182. One, um, Britney Spears. Back to Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Believe it or not, it is a step up. Um, and Gary Barlow, apparently. Terribly, terribly. Somehow I knew that. I don't know why. Oh, we've got the same accountant, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> you and Jimmy yeah, Carr. There, we go, there um, we go. Despite not being in the birds all that long, uh, the bassist of the birds, Chris Hillman, later made some really interesting comments about Gene's role in that group's development. He said, At one time, he was the power in the birds, not McGinn, not Crosby. It was Gene who would burst through the stage curtain, banging on a tambourine, coming on like a young Prince Valiant, a hero, our saviour. Few in the audience could take their eyes off his presence. He was the songwriter. He had the gift that none of the rest of us had developed yet. Was well, he not also relegated to being just a singer and like not, told not to play guitar as well? Uh, he was he was bumped on a harmonica and tambourine, I think, and that's not as cool as a guitar. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hillman continued, what deep inner part of his soul conjured up songs like Set You Free This Time, I'll Feel A Whole Lot Better.
I'm Feeling Higher, 8 Miles High, so many great songs. We learned a lot of songwriting from him and in the process learned a little bit about ourselves. So Hillman was pretty gracious in acknowledging of Gene Clark's key role in the birds, despite the acrimony around the royalties and despite you know him being unhappy about getting knocked onto mm. these crappy inferior duties and not allowed to sing certain songs. It was I mean it wasn't like it was a secret. He was he was the man in the early success of that band. Um now Post Birds, I mean, like you said, he's only in them for two years and his solo career, uh, the Gene Clark with the Godson Brothers 67. On the streets you look again at the places you have been for the moments that you thought, where am I going? Though the walls are like the dead, they reflect the things you see. You mentioned it. Total commercial flop, but largely it seems due to Columbia releasing it at almost the exact same mm-hmm. time as the Bird's yeah. fifth record, Younger Than Yesterday. Um, it, Gene Clark had been out of the spotlight by that point, almost 18 months, which made it really, really hard to promote it and get him back on the radar. Uh, the, the album itself is it's only 28 minutes long, a punky 28 minutes long. Yeah, you'll notice that most, even the Bird records, man, I don't think there's any, like, re, the reissues blow them like over half their length. Uh, I think the first two Bird's album are. Birds albums are less than 35 minutes long yeah. each, you know. Who knew it? Um, it's more lushly arranged. Uh, there's clearly a bit of thought and time spent in it. Um, I, th- I think the first track on that one, Echoes, has this weirdly Lou Reed flavour to the vocals, um, along with these key changes that add a really psychedelic folk touch. And uh, the third track in it as well stood out, Tried So Hard, because it's basically all the elements that made the choral work. You know, the band The Coral, yeah. they really sound like that. Um, uh, it's kind of jaunty and fun, but has these really nice key changes and stuff. And yeah, it really reminded me of them. Yeah. I thought it, it gave me a, a huge Beatles vibe when the Beatles were folky and psychedelic, you know, and the arrangements particularly. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't mind it, you know. It, it, it's weird that he goes country like quite soon. I'm not full country f- for a few albums, but uh, you can't really hear that. No, you, but, yeah, but the line from don't folk, notice it coming. Do you? The line from folk to country isn't really that isn't really that long either. To be honest, mm. I, I think for a lot of people, particularly I guess if you're American, but yeah, I didn't fall out with this record. Man, I thought it was totally fine. It was only as I didn't listen to any of the, uh, any of his uh, solo albums in full. In full, mm-hmm. I just picked just like picked some of the biggest tracks, the biggest well known tracks, and yeah, I mean the ones that were on this definitely. It felt like really accomplished 60s it's, it, exactly writing, yeah it's you know? decent it's of its era but it does feel accomplished and so the fact that it charted so badly it, it is interesting to know the context of it being basically put head to head with his previous band however the previous band having the advantage that he'd va- basically vanished for nearly a year and a half um, and, and so a bit like that's what I'm saying about him being seen as being this perennial underachiever like he's bringing out these records on paper you're like that's got everything it, it should need to succeed so why is it not succeeding and that, I think, is a bit of bad luck. Maybe a bit of bad decision, but it's a bit of bad luck as well, you know? I mean, probably Torpedo, but a record label to a large extent as well. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they, they seem to really didn't like him very much anyway, and, and the birds, so... Which is odd, because generally speaking, the, the, the reports by session musicians and players was, were pretty positive about Gene Clark. He was maybe a really nice guy. Uh, or, or at least in the sessions for no other. The, the people that worked with him said he was fantastic. Um, but anyway, so he actually rejoined the Birds, uh, albeit for only three weeks in 1967 when David Crosby left. Um, but funnily, you, you, you were talking about uh, Brian Wilson having that attack on a flight. He had a horrendous anxiety attack uh, when they were on the road. I think he was in Minneapolis at the time and left the band again. He was like, I can't do this. That was it. That was, it was scuppered. Um, in 71, he brought out his sort of first proper solo record under his own name. Um, it's actually called White Light. It doesn't say that in the cover, um, but the, the, the rec- some people thought it was just called Gene Clark's. And it used to get reviewed under the wrong name, but it's White Light. Um, it flopped everywhere except, weirdly, the Netherlands, where mm-hmm. it was hailed in a lot of publications as Album of the Year. And by the way, 1971, let's not forget, is the year of what's going on Imagine Hunky Dory by Boy, uh, Led Zeppelin 4, LA Women by the Doors. You know, it's, it's fucking some heavy, heavy duty records coming out in that year. And a lot of these publications in the Netherlands where this album happened to take were like, this is the best record this year. You know, wow. that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's a much more typically kind of stripped back 70s singer songwriter affair. She 
went off to the city to find what she was looking for, to identify and to really try to find. You know, with lots of harmonica and a fair bit of country showing up. Uh, by the way, I must say the cover art on it is fucking lovely. It's it's just a small silhouette of a man crouching before a really golden moon. It's really understated. Just has his name in it. Doesn't have the album title. Um, it's quite a sweet record as well. You know, Gene's voice has this really silken, vulnerable quality to it. I think it's debatably his next best work overall uh, after after no other. Albeit there is a fair drop off. Um, in terms of the, the tracks, so the, the verse of the first track, The Virgin, is pretty unremarkable and kind of functional, but I have to say the chorus shifts to a minor and it really kept hooking Great. me in. It's really a good. really nice mm-hmm. chorus, yeah. With no curfews left to hold her And no walls to shield her pain Finding out that facts were older And that life for um, the biggest tune in it was Because of You, which is this incredibly 70s bit of work. Then the dark clouds break away And the rainbow comes on through But it didn't really connect to me at all. Track six in it is an interesting one for a Spanish guitar. Who are ringing the rhymes of the deep as they sing of the ages asleep Not so near or so far Nice wee tune, but Bob Dylan rates it as literally one of the best songs ever written. He absolutely said it's got everything a song should have. It's it's one of his favourite tunes. Um, the the kind of jaunty, kind of white light title track, sorry, as well. There's also... Coincidentally, a Dylan cover on it called Tears of Rage, which is thought by a lot of people uh, to be as good as the original. Oh, a daughter beneath the sun would treat her father so to wait upon him. I quite liked uh, the song White Light as well. I mean, that was the only one that really came across, uh, apart from The Virgin and the, the Bob Dylan cover, obviously, which is. Bob Dylan cover here. Yeah, I mean it's well it's well executed. I just mm-hmm. don't give a shit about Bob Dylan really. Um, in seventy two, <laughs> really? I don't know. I just I don't know. I just who fucking cares about Bob Dylan? A lot of people. Lot oh, of I, people. I mean it's rhetorical, but I, I, I I'm I'm indifferent on him as well, to be honest. Vicky, you like Bob Dylan? I like Bob Dylan. Yes. I mean Bob Dylan's got a lot of music. It's quite there's there's definitely a lot of shit in there, but there's a lot of amazing amazing. Oh stuff. yeah. I mean, in fairness, you know, it's like it's like the Beatles. There's a handful of tracks that I do consider fucking brilliant. There's and more just, than a handful, but yes. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Well, maybe there's albums full. I could I could imagine this coming up at the Christmas. <laughs> Uh, special. <laughs> I guess the question we should be asking ourselves is: Is there a Bob Dylan album in our future? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, we know. should probably start recording. How start many record albums that. does he have? About eighty. I fucking knows, man. <laughs> yeah, research that yeah. now. It's, it's probably what I saying. Albums. We start last week for <laughs> yeah. twenty twenty nine. It's, it's kind of get for me. It's, it's a Springsteen effect. If you're if you're not familiar. If you don't have a hook to get in, man, you're lost. Mm-hmm. Like, you can begin with the big stuff, but then where did you go from there, you know? Yeah, there's a handful of good tracks. We'll agree mm-hmm. disagree. <laughs> in 72, Gene Clark brings out this kind of compilation called The Early LA Sessions. It's a kind of respectable collection of alternative versions of stuff. Uh, includes a kind of nice wee rendition of a, a tried so hard. Uh, it didn't really make too big an impact on me. In uh, '73, uh, a record comes out called Roadmaster, and Roadmaster is marketed as an album, but it's technically a collection. She's the kind of girl. of a compilation patched together from a number of sessions between 70 and 72 different collaborators involved so the sound and the vibe across the runtime is pretty varied the second track in it one in a hundred has this really birds quality given that it was recorded with that band as part of an unreleased single Close to- 
Um, and so it really, really reeks of that late 60s in the arrangement and the execution and the, the, the psychedelia. I think it was during the sessions for that single that David Geffen got wind of Gene Clark's writing and made the decision to sign him. I, I think that's correct. But anyway... For, for that record in general, the inconsistency makes it a little bit hard to get into. You know, you can't really get into a state of mind with it. And it's definitely not helped by the, this really nasty white boy roadhouse funk at the title track. The title track absolutely fucking stinks. It's awful. That's a cover, incidentally. It's humming. Mm-hmm. It's, the Full Circle song was fine. Quite enjoyed that. One in a hundred is a, quite a big song for him, isn't it? Quite a, I think it's quite a well-known song. Of his. It's, it's te- I mean, for Birds fans, it's an essential thing mm. because it was technically a Birds song until it, it wasn't, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, in 1974, no other. We'll come back to that in a bit more detail. 1977, Two Sides to Every Story. One of the most boring album covers I've seen in a long time. Guy standing with his foot up on a bench in his badly lit back garden. I <laughs> 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 love it. That's just running out of ideas no. at that point, phoning it in. Um, full Studio Affair uh, is generally, I think, seen as quite a patchy effort uh, by audience and reviewers. And the heads of state call out all of their reserves so they could postpone World War III. I can hear the morning cry yelling, read all about it, here's the truth. Clark considered that his best record uh, uh, only after no other. That was in an interview that was just six weeks before his death. Um, the first track in it, Home Run King, features this banjo powerhouse called Doug Dillard. This is really, kind of, to me, horrible, bumpkin good old boy, honky-tonk, American mm-hmm. soft rock. Don't like it at all. Yeah, it, 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 frankly, it sounds like it could have been on the soundtrack to Every Which Way But Loose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was, actually. I haven't checked. Um, the whole record is dipped in smoky barbecue sauce, Kentucky Fried Honkin'. Um, track three... Let's mention track three, In the Pines. Yeah. Which it's is the, by, by far and away the most defensive version of this song. <laughs> <laughs> a weird, weird reworked and, let's be clear, bogging take on Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Black girl, black girl, tell me where, tell me where did you sleep last night? Oh, that's the original and the Led Belly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's traditional, right? So I guess you do what you want with the, well, the actual song. So yeah, but is, is it not? So no, Led Belly did a that has done the definitive mm-hmm. version of it, but it's a it's a, it's a traditional song. I don't know what's the definitive name though. Is it Where Did You Sleep Last Night or is it In the Pines? Because the Lead Belly, the Huddy Ledbetter song, mm-hmm. is Where Did You Sleep Last Night. I mean, it's, it's also called My Girl and Black Girl, so it's a traditional song. Who the fuck knows, right? Pick your favourite. Anyway, it's, it is minging, and this is <laughs> this is crap. this is exactly the kind of country vibe I detest yeah. <laughs> entirely. It just doesn't work for me. There's a lot of it on this record, so I really checked out. There's a fair few pickup trucks running on this in the states, don't you think? I think you're giving this too much credit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, no, I really struggled with this record. Um, maybe some enthusiast can set me right, but I have no inclination to ever revisit it. Vicky, what did you think? Didn't like it. I could tell. Because the lights are on, I could see that look. <laughs> I can only assume you've always got that look in your face. Um, in 1979, he ended up touring with the new projects of both Chris Hillman and Roger McGinn, uh, Jim Roger McGinn, <laughs> of the birds. Um, and that kind of soon led to a bit of a reconciliation. So basically, they had their own individual bands, and the three bands were touring together, and that kind of brought them together again. Um, McGinn and Clark initially teamed up as an acoustic duo, then Chris Hillman joined for what was known as McGinn, Clark and Hillman Project. The river flows, it flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. Flow, river, flow, let your waters wash down. They had the self-titled record that came out in 79, and, I don't know, critics took a bit of a dislike to these slightly disco vibes that were on it. I don't know if you heard I this. I didn't listen to that one. Well, there's a track called Release Me Girl, um, which actually did okay. It went top 40 in the States, but it definitely has a distinct disco quality to it. Oh 
Um, and they followed that up with an album called City, not the Strapping Young Lad album. Mm-hmm. Easy to confuse them. Um, but City had to be credited to, quote, Roger McGinn and Chris Hillman featuring Gene Clark due to Gene Clark's basic unreliability and uh, a newfound <laughs> enthusiasm for heroin. Mm. And he, he left that project soon after. Um, and in terms of like output, uh, there wasn't a lot of studio work going on in, in that interval. Uh, in 84, he brought out a record called Firebird, uh, Bird with a Y, and uh, no surprises as to why. It comes 20 years after he first formed uh, the Birds. Inc- it includes plenty of, shall we say, f- what seems slightly frustrated nods towards mm. his previous role in the Birds. I mean, the title, Firebird, Phoenix, Rising from the Ashes, you know, the mm. allusions to that. It's he was also s- the bird that was fired. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fuck man, I never even got that Maybe he would have changed it if somebody bothered to say that to him Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's why he did pick it Somebody at the back of the room thinking, should I mention this? <laughs> he needs a Vicky yeah. um, I like to think he did it himself so cunts. Uh, exactly. So there's a narrative about rebirth And it's a wee bit tragic in hindsight But apparently, so I read in um, contemporaneous accounts uh, The success of bands like R.E.M. Had reignited interest in a lot of the bands that they were citing as being mm-hmm. childhood influences. You know, R.E.M. had that jangly college rock sound that was starting to come out, yeah, and a lot of people st- started working backwards. I don't like R.E.M. They're pish. Right. <laughs> Same. <laughs> could be a Dylan versus R.E.M. episode oh, on God. the horizon. About that for a snooze fest. Jesus, I can see my iPhone in the back of my head already. Oh my God. It's not exactly the boxing match you're waiting for, is it? No, but we can't do much better than that. So. That old guy for doing the street versus the tax inspector. Um, okay, that record opens with Mr. Tambourine Man, which is a bit on the nose. That I know. version of it actually. I it's a good it's a version, version, but you're like, it. let it go. Mm. <laughs> Just let it go. Move on. This doesn't turn up in any of any of the compilations or collections that are on Spotify no, and stuff. This album the thing is, this actually. album got great reviews when it came out. I mean, it flopped, but it got really good critical reviews. Um, uh, apparently, one of the thing, one of the reasons cited for it flopping so badly, despite the positive critical response, is that the distribution of it was an absolute fucking mess. Like they just couldn't get it to people. People couldn't. Get get their hands in it they were reading these reviews and it supposedly it's led to the second hand copies of it changing hands for fucking mm. ridiculous money because it was so difficult for people to get hold of especially obviously pre-internet like how the fuck are you, are how has he had such shit luck with record companies yeah these I mean, are like huge mistakes that's what i'm saying though it's like a little bit of the decision to go with these people but also a little bit of misfortune but i mean that's two or three incidents now that have really fucking hamstrung them through no fault i mean he's he's done the hard part he's made a really good record and yet he's maybe not in the frame of mind to be chasing these things up the thing is he might not be in the frame of mind to chase these things up but also to be constantly making stuff that you must know is good and to constantly see it fail must damage your frame of mind you know the guy became an alcoholic the guy had numerous problems with drugs but the guy was putting out as we've said so far at least two or three world-class albums very well received critically that are dying on their ass and he's watching his ex-bandmates sell millions and sell out stadia and he's just thinking the fuck do i have to do Mm. and that must have a it must take a real toll on your mental health and Mm. your enthusiasm for life you know Mm -hmm. um as I said, it, it got great reviews, came out. Some of the, the new songs were hailed as his best in decades, and I think Birds fans in particular tend to see it as a fairly essential thing to try and own. Um, I can't see him on that train, but it is a solid record. It kind of defines that archetypal pickup truck, country-soaked American rock that I was sort of hinting at earlier on. It's totally fine and it's actually probably very useful if you're somebody trying to soundtrack a a TV show or or a movie in the States, the early scenes of a Transformers film Mm -hmm. or something like that. 
So, in, but in terms of other bits and bobs from his career, in '85, he, he actually approached the other birds, or ex-birds at this point, about reuniting for the 20th anniversary of Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, again, mate, let it go. But <laughs> I think that's kind of what they said because he was rebuffed and so instead, he, slightly undeterred, maybe a wee bit out of stubbornness, he assembled a bunch of other musicians to perform as quote the 20th anniversary tribute to the birds. Now that was what was advertised as on the tour, but the promoters on the tour apparently started shortening it to just the birds and much to the chagrin of the actual the birds and and long after Clark had actually left the 20th anniversary tribute to the birds now shortened to the birds they continued <laughs> and so what ensued was that the, the original birds deliberately went back on the road to re-establish their copyright on the name so there were two bands called the birds touring about it's like fucking black flag or something so the beach boys <laughs> dead kennedys or something like the beach boys um so they're going about competing over the rights to this name in 87 uh, he brought out a record again fairly well received at least in certain circles, uh, called So Rebellious a Lover with a, a, a musician called Carla Olson. Gypsy rider scene Your two-wheel symphony You know The country music scene really liked it. Um, it went down really well but his health was causing problems including a battle with alcohol and this is when he started to get operations on his ulcers which were becoming chronic Um, after that the the releases that are a little bit irrelevant to the purposes of this show there's a lot of comps there's a lot of rarities there's a bunch of live stuff some of it really poor sound quality in there is there some amazing sleeping masterpiece maybe um, but so much of it is this tired M.O.R. American cheesy dad rock it's really Honestly, it's just draining to to try and troll through it. It it is fucking physically and mentally exhausting to listen to this music when it's so fucking banal in in the later era. (laughs) Maybe to illustrate, in the opening moments of the 1988 live bootleg, uh, I think it's a live bootleg anyway, called Solo Flight. He's a bird. You know, he's on his own. Yeah, he's um, really ripping the piss out of this metaphor now, isn't he? um, You hear him exclaim, uh, this is just the start of the song, this is it, huh? This is it, huh? Well, before I start here, hello, hello, we're happening. Uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about... Uh, in the context, I'm, I'm assuming it's a reference to him walking out on stage and seeing the size of the crowd. And actually, when you hear the crowd clapping, it, it sounds paltry. Um, mm. And that's just, that's a bit demoralising to hear. Yeah, there's a stripped back version of Silver Raven from the album Mm -hmm, we're about to discuss mm -hmm. that follows and it's got this weird despondency to it on that record that, yeah, it just contributes to a kind of slight tragedy. Um, In 89, Tom Petty covered uh, his track I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better and that yielded a financial windfall. Um, but that financial windfall apparently had the counterproductive effect of causing Gene Clark to, quote, neglect his professional obligations, i.e. just go on one. That led to rumours of financial irregularities from his collaborator, Carla Olsen, from the country record, and a split from his long-term love interest, uh, Terry Messina. I think Terry Messina and, and him had had like almost 20 years of on-again, off-again sort of stuff going on. The Birds did briefly manage to get together again long enough to perform and be admitted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in January 91. But basically, uh, at the same time, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly in the chronology because it's so tight, but he was diagnosed with throat cancer that same month, I think. Even then, he continued to drink excessively and, as I said, eventually, as I understand it, died of a bleeding ulcer resulting from the alcoholism there are loads of other curios and outtakes kicking around in the Gene Clark universe, live recordings, uh, some nice collections of rarities. One that's worth finding, I think, is uh, That's All Right By Me, which got released in 1998 on a collection called Flying High. Baby, don't you lie to me. I know you think that you must go. 
audio is not great on it, but it's a lovely rendition. It's kind of like his early, early stuff. Um, other than Silver Raven, a lot, a lot of the songs from No Other are conspicuously absent from a lot of the live collections. Now, I don't think that's necessarily because he had a tarnished personal reputation with him, because I think he said it was his best work. He liked it. He liked it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's possibly that it maybe just somehow didn't translate, minus the bigger... You know, because the record is so maximalist. Oh, then nobody heard of it. Nobody heard it. Yeah, there's also that. I yeah. went out of print. I think went out of print to very go out early. Print. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Uh, so and that was Gene Clark. I mean, covers and tributes are worth just making a nod to because there are we've mentioned quite a few involving Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, and stuff like that already. Um, but in terms of more contemporary stuff, the standard of the covers is surprisingly high for Gene Clark, and I do think that's maybe because the people that cover Gene Clark are really quite invested in Gene Clark. That you know holds a special place. A good example of that would be this Mortal Coil who we've mentioned on the show in the Cocktail Twins episode. The project of Ivor Watts Russell, the founder of 4AD. Uh, this Mortal Coil have got a cover of Strength of Strings and it is fucking terrific. From 1986, gothy electronic thing. really really well executed and you can tell how much Gene Clark's work meant to Ivor Watts Russell and you know it was Ivor Watts Russell and 4ED that actually went to the trouble of reissuing no other which is probably the only reason that I ended up even finding it out about it so that's somebody that really cared about the source material uh, another one is Mark Lanigan did a version with a band called Soul Savers which sounds like a fucking discount <laughs> exorcism <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they did a version of Some Misunderstanding from 2007. And that is a really big, fleshed out, grungy, modern reboot. It's really similar, it's just bigger and Lanigan's take is really different but it's really good as well. Um, a little bit noodly but then the original is kind of noodly as well. Uh, the other thing I, I do want to mention before we actually just go into the album itself is the Gene Clark No Other Band. So basically Victor Legrand and Alex Scally of the band Beach House along with people from Fleet Foxes, Fairport Convention, The Walkman, Grizzly Bear. They formed this kind of super group and did, it was only a four-day tour of the States, and it was in 2014, playing the entire album start to finish. Um, there's one performance of it actually recorded uh, in Williamsburg, Texas, and, and put out by Pitchfork, I believe. It's, inv- it's available in its entirety on YouTube, and it is honestly spectacular. Like, what a fucking amazing job they did of it. It, it sounds amazing. Um, a real labour of love does the material justice it's really worth checking out if you end up liking this please go and look up the Gene Clark No Other Band uh, that, that show from Pitchfork in Williamsburg it's, it's really really good I was I was blown away by it actually I, I didn't expect much of it but it's, it's excellent which uh, so we're kind of getting in pretty deep here so mm-hmm. maybe this is a good point to just take a little pause yeah and we can come back to this next week sure pick, pick up where we left off yeah, Don't want to throw too much at people. Just turn the lights out and you're way out. <laughs> I'll be here next week. Sitting in the exact same spot. <laughs> in the dark. Well, mm-hmm. Listening to the boy racers and the buses go by. Mm. Mm. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>